Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, we're going to continue our journey to the bottom of the ocean or at least our our journey to understanding submarines and how they work. So in our previous episode, I talked about the early attempts at building vehicles that can travel beneath the waves. And we learned about brave or perhaps foolhardy inventors who took great risks and sometimes perished in the process to come up with a working submarine. And nearly all the applications for the innovation were centered around warfare. There were a couple people who were thinking about it for, you know, like a pleasure cruise under the waters. But for the most part, people were thinking, how can I use this to sneak up on people I don't like and then blow them up real good? Now, I left off in the middle of the 19th century with a discussion on the submarines that were used during the Civil War, as well as one that was built around that same time over in France. So let's pick up from there. And as I mentioned in that episode, I'll not be covering every single submarine or every single advance in submarines bit by bit because that would take forever. We'd have to do 50 episodes. So we're going to be jumping around a little bit in this one. One innovation that isn't about submarines specifically would still contribute to their evolution, and that was the self-propelled torpedo. In 1868, a man named Robert Whitehead came up with a design for an explosive device that could travel through the water using compressed air as the power source. Now, keep in mind that up until that point, submarines relied on either approaching a ship close enough so that you could physically attach an explosive mine to that ship, or having a spar mounted to the front of the submarine and then ramming a ship and the the spar is tipped with an explosive, which clearly would put both the ship and the submarine at risk. That's how, in fact, the Hunley sank after it hit its target, the Housatanic. But in that process, everyone on board the Hunley died. That's not ideal either. There was also the attempt to tow an explosive behind the submarine in an effort to set it on a course that would collide with the target ship, but that was also dangerous because if it collided with the submarine, it would blow up prematurely. So the development of a projectile that could travel through the water would mean it would be possible to design a submarine that could be an effective military vehicle. You would have a a torpedo tube that you could load a torpedo into, you would flood the tube, and then you would activate the torpedo. If such a vessel could carry torpedoes like the ones that Whitehead was designing, then they could launch them at a target at a distance without putting itself in direct danger. Whitehead's torpedo design called for a pair of cylinders containing compressed air at 90 atmospheres. And these were within the body of the torpedo itself, took up most of the space inside the torpedo, in fact. The compressed air would, when released, force its way outward, turning mechanical components through a system of gears that transferred that motion to propellers at the base or the rear of the torpedo. There was also a rudder in the back that allowed for stability and some aiming capabilities. There was no real way to steer a torpedo once it left, uh, not yet anyway. Whitehead's prototype could travel at a speed of six and a half knots. 
That's about seven and a half miles per hour or 12 kilometers per hour. And it had a range of around 200 yards or about 183 meters. A ship, you know, the the over the waves kind of ship, was meant to launch it from a tube that was at or below the waterline using either a gunpowder charge or compressed air. Whitehead and others would improve on that basic design, adding components like gyroscopes to help with steering and stability, but all that would happen over the course of the next few decades. Now, the military submarines I covered in the last episode were, at best, only partially successful, but there was a lot of work that needed to be done to make them a more reliable resource. Much of that work would be done by an inventor named John Philip Holland, whom many call the father of the modern submarine. Holland was born not in Holland, but in Ireland, which I think he did as a joke to confuse me. He went to school in Limerick. So, I guess this is happening. Get ready for some poetry. John Philip was quite the boy wonder, who flinched not at high waves or at thunder. I don't care a pip. I built a new ship. I don't float on the sea. I go under. There's your Limerick. He studied engineering and worked on many hypotheses, including a paper about the possibilities of mechanical flight, and this would be years before the Wright brothers found success at Kitty Hawk. He also read about the earlier submarine designs in America during the Revolutionary and Civil Wars. And Holland was interested in these in large part because Ireland was under British control and conditions in Ireland were pretty harsh and a lot of blame was being thrown toward the British. Not only was there famine and disease in Ireland, but also some ruthless business practices were turning Irish families out on the streets. There was even a practice called leveling, in which a landlord would evict a family, then strip the thatched roof off of that family's house in an effort to prevent them from moving back into their former homes. Holland was therefore interested in technologies that might help turn the scales against a force that otherwise could seem insurmountable. England's navy was the envy of the world, so how could Ireland ever stand up to them? Holland would immigrate to the United States in 1873, and not long after he arrived, he fell and broke his leg, and he was laid up for a few months. So to occupy his mind, he began to seriously consider how one might overcome the challenges of building a practical submarine. He continued working on his ideas for a new submarine, and then he presented those ideas to the United States Navy in 1875. The Navy initially dismissed the designs as, quote, a fantastic scheme of a civilian landsman, end quote. The Navy was famously skeptical of submarines. Holland, undeterred, made a model nearly three feet long, that's about 33 inches or 84 centimeters in length, and demonstrated it at Coney Island in New York. The Fenian Brotherhood, which was an organization made up of Irish and Irish-American people who believed Ireland had a natural right to independence from Britain, would end up funding his efforts to build a larger working model. This one, about twice the size of the original, was called the Fenian Ram in an article in the New York Sun. It was not named that by Holland himself. The Fenian Ram would reduce its buoyancy by taking on water, uh, you know, all, otherwise known as ballast. But overall, it would maintain positive buoyancy, so it wouldn't just sink to the bottom. It would actually bob up to the surface. But to maintain its position underwater, the Fenian ram depended upon a set of horizontal planes. They actually called them horizontal rudders back then. They're kind of like airplane wings. 
but you could angle them so that when there was forward motion from the submarine in the water, the water itself would push the submarine downward as it flowed over these horizontal planes. So kind of like how an airplane's wings uh, create the lift in order to uh, lift an airplane off the ground, these were sort of doing lift but in reverse. So if the sub were moving, it could remain underwater. But if it stopped moving, let's say the engine failed, then it would, at least in theory, bob up to the surface. And then whoever was in the submarine could get the heck out of it. The Fenian ram also had a pneumatic gun that it could fire uh, steel projectiles from. And those steel projectiles would be filled with dynamite, which sounds super safe. So this was kind of like a, a very primitive torpedo. And when not in use, then the gun's tube would be sealed with a cap. Uh, so you would have the cap in place until you were ready to fire, and then you would have to move the cap out of the way, fire the gun, and then hope for the best, I guess. Some shenanigans among the members of the Fenian society would sour Holland on the whole experience. In fact, one faction of this group it sort of broke apart, and one faction ended up stealing the Fenian uh, ram and uh, almost immediately sunk it. Holland refused to work with them. It, they ended up storing it in a shed, and he famously said something along the lines of, I hope it rots on their hands. He did continue to work on innovations with submarines, and in his mind, the goal would be not to escalate tensions between Ireland and Britain, but rather to pave the way for world peace. He was thinking, well, if you know your enemy has a weapon that you cannot detect, you cannot see it, and that weapon could sneak up on you and destroy your most powerful ships, then you're not going to be aggressive toward that country, right? You already know if you're aggressive toward them, they can attack you without you seeing them and they can lay waste to your forces and your shipping. And so it makes sense. You'll back off. And then if everybody has these, no one would dare attack anybody else. So in other words, it would be a weapon of deterrence. And it's sort of the same concept that would underlay the whole mutual destruction philosophy during the Cold War. And as we know, due to hindsight, this idea rarely works out. I mean, you could argue that the conditions in Europe leading up to World War I were kind of similar. If everyone built up these big armies, no one would ever be so foolhardy as to use them. But at some point or another, someone tends to decide that it's worth the risk. We were lucky that no one thought that during the Cold War with uh, nuclear proliferation, and we can only hope that the same will prove true in the future. Anyway, Holland would end up working as a draftsman for many years until the early 1890s when the U.S. Navy called for submissions for the design of a submarine. So the U.S. Navy was starting to come around to the idea at this point. Holland decided to make an effort to win a contract with the Navy. And he sank a lot of his own money into this project and then sought investments from some businessmen to complete his submission. They formed what would become the Electric Boat Company, which would own all of Holland's patents. The Navy would insist on certain elements in the design, and Holland objected to those elements. Primarily, he objected to the inclusion of a steam engine because, well, it would be really hot. But it was also what all the Navy's ships were relying upon for propulsion at the time. This was what was generating the, the power needed to propel ships. 
So they wanted their submarines to be working on the same principle. Holland pointed out that a boiler inside a submarine would cause the interior of the submarine to heat up to intolerable levels. He even argued that maybe if you want to have a, a steamer, if you want to have a boiler on the ship, at least let me use some insulation to help shield the operator from the heat. But the Navy said, no, we don't do that for any of our ships. And the electric boat company would comply with the Navy's orders and began to build a ship called the Plunger. But Holland's concerns proved to be on point. It was, you just couldn't stand to be inside this thing with the boiler going. It was just way too hot. The Navy would decide not to commission the Plunger, so the Plunger was never officially a Navy ship. Holland convinced his business partners to let him design an alternative to the Plunger. It was a submarine that he would call the Holland Six. He had built five previous submarines. The Plunger was technically the Holland Five. He was able to launch a new prototype submarine on May 17, 1897. This submarine was innovative for a couple of reasons. One is that it used a gasoline-powered engine to operate when the submarine was surfaced. When it would go below the waves, then it could switch to a system of batteries and electric motors. The advances in electricity meant that Holland could build a system that didn't require combustion. Combustion works great when you have a way to vent fumes and you also have access to oxygen because it needs oxygen in order for it to work. But if you're on, in an underwater tube, uh, the combustion is not the most ideal method to power your propulsion system. The electric motors made it possible to build a submarine that could operate without the limitations of manpower or compressed air, though you would have to surface and run the submarine on its gasoline-powered engine in order to recharge the batteries. Holland changed the center of buoyancy for this ship as well. Earlier ships that he had built had put the center of buoyancy very, very close to the center of the ship itself, so right smack dab along the middle of the length of the ship. Holland decided to change his design so that the center of buoyancy was moved further forward in the submarine's frame. This would become a common feature in submarines after Holland's design. His ship had compressed air tanks as well. These were there to supply fresh air to the operator while the ship was going underwater. Uh, it had a telescoping air vent that could access air above water when the ship was not far from the surface. And of course, the operator could open up the hatch of the, sh the submarine itself to access air once the submarine had surfaced. It's highly recommended you do not open the hatch when you're underwater. One other innovation that Holland made was in the ballast tanks. Earlier submarines had problems with stability when water in the ballast tanks would slosh around. I talked about that with Le Plongeur, the French submarine from the last episode. So Holland's solution was to make certain the ballast tanks would be completely full with no free air space inside of them. That way the water couldn't slosh at all. It was completely... Uh, occupying the space inside the ballast tanks. That allowed for controlled diving and ascending using just those horizontal rudders, those horizontal planes I mentioned earlier, and using the forward motion of the ship to guide the submarine. He also moved the horizontal rudders to the end of the ship, toward the propellers. And that meant that a small change in the orientation of the rudder would result in a much greater change for the rest of the ship. It's kind of like the lever effect. 
Holland demonstrated the Holland Six to the Navy, which put it through numerous paces. The Navy was staffed with admirals who were still incredibly skeptical about the capabilities of an underwater ship. I mean, there was no deck for you to strut upon and to be all grand and stuff while you commanded your men to you know, needlessly sacrifice themselves over and over again. So how could this be a a proper use of a sailor's time? But the Holland Six completed all the tests very well, and ultimately the Navy commissioned the ship as the USS Holland. And the Holland would become the first real practical submarine in the U.S. Navy's fleet, and it established the U.S. Navy's submarine force. The Holland was armed as well. Originally, it had three armaments. One was a torpedo tube from which the Holland could fire whitehead torpedoes, like the ones I mentioned earlier. A secondary port above that one would allow for a pneumatic gun to fire what they called air torpedoes, pretty much what the uh, Fenian ram could do. There was a third gun, which was another pneumatic dynamite gun that would face backward. So it's on the stern of the submarine and would face behind it. The stern gun would end up being scrapped in favor of an improved exhaust system since the gasoline engine would generate some pretty nasty fumes in operation and needed to have a clear way to exhaust those fumes and get uh, fresh oxygen into the combustion chamber. The Holland served as a Navy ship, largely being used in experimental missions to help refine the design and construction of future submarines. But by the 1930s, the Navy had decommissioned the Holland and she was scrapped in Boston, and only a plate bearing her name remains. A a metal plate, that is, not a dinner plate. As for the Electric Boat Company, they would sell submarines to the U.S. Navy, to Japan, to Russia, and even to the Royal Navy of the United Kingdom, the dreaded force that Holland had plotted against many years earlier. As for Holland, he would work for the electric boat company, but over time, he began to disagree with the board of directors, primarily over submarine designs that he considered to be unsafe. After several accidents on submarines, many named after Holland himself, he decided to resign from the company. He retired by 1907, and he died about seven years later, just before World War I, when the submarine would be put to great use in war. I'll explain more in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. One thing I want to talk about before I get right back into the history of submarines is the use of periscopes. And a periscope is a device meant to conduct light from one area to another for the purposes of seeing what the heck is going on in some area that would otherwise be inaccessible. So... It's done with mirrors and prisms, and it captures the light from one spot and then conducts that light to another spot. It's kind of like looking through the viewfinder of a camera, except that the lens is positioned somewhere, you know, maybe several feet away from you, like above you. And uh, it's an ingenious invention, and there are not a lot of details about when periscopes were first added to submarines. They had been known for a long time before submarines started to use them. But uh, it was fairly early on with submarines to to have periscopes. Collapsible periscopes would have to wait for a little bit longer, but even they would become pretty common for submarines by the 1910s. With a periscope, a submariner could get a look at what was around a submarine without the sub having to fully surface. And, you know, someone would have to open up a hatch and stick their head out and go, what's going on this side? 
With Holland's innovations, more companies began building submarines. And because of the clear military applications, the world powers all got into the game. Over in Germany, shipbuilders were making Unterseeboots, or U-boats. While Holland was demonstrating his gasoline-electric hybrid, Germans were working with steam-powered subs. But engineers soon graduated to other types of engines, and by the early 1910s, Germany had successfully launched submarines using diesel engines when they were on the surface and electric systems when they were underwater. One class of these submarines, the U-19 class, would end up playing a pivotal role during World War I. Submarines were still a new concept in naval warfare, and they proved to be devastatingly effective in disrupting shipping lines. A submarine could approach a target ship with almost no warning before firing upon it. And it didn't take long for the British to look into ways to counteract the threat of submarines, leading to the development of explosives that could be set off underwater. These became known as depth charges. They weren't effective as weapons unless they happened to explode really close to a submarine. But they were effective deterrents, probably because being aboard a submarine that's just in decent working order is already pretty darn risky. If you start hearing explosions going off, even if they're not right next to you, you're probably having a lot of second thoughts. In 1915, a U-19-class submarine called SMU-20, and yes, I know it's confusing, but that's because there were four submarines that were in the U-19-class, the first of which was U-19, and then the others U-20, U-21, and U-22. Anyway, it fired on a cruise liner called the Lusitania. The ship was struck by a torpedo, and it sank in less than 20 minutes with the loss of nearly 1,200 people. The Germans maintained that the Lusitania was being used to move munitions in addition to acting as a cruise liner, which the UK government denied for decades until more recent years when they owned up to it, uh, because salvage operations would have encountered potentially dangerous conditions due to the explosives that were, in fact, on board the Lusitania. The sinking of the Lusitania, which had nearly 130 American citizens on board, would also end up setting the stage for America to get directly involved in the conflict a couple of years later. Now, this involves having to talk about some political concepts that are not directly related to submarines. Germany's use of submarines prompted the UK to outfit some merchant ships with heavy guns that could easily be concealed and then brought to bear on a submarine once it surfaced. These ships were bait, essentially. They were bait meant to lure German U-boat commanders to maneuver into a position where the U-boats could be attacked. And you could argue that it was this practice that set the conditions necessary for a tragedy like the sinking of the Lusitania to happen. So let me explain. For more than a, a century, the practice was for all uh, military ships to follow what were called cruiser rules or prize rules. These rules stated that a government's ships would not fire upon civilian or merchant vessels without warning. So you could stop a vessel, you could uh, sail up to a, a merchant ship or a civilian ship, and you could demand that they do whatever, they could surrender the boat or they could leave the area. 
And then if they did not do that, then you would have the authorization to fire upon that ship. But you couldn't just fire upon them with no warning. And typically, the way this would work is that you would stop a ship, you would then transport all the crew and passengers off of the ship to some safe location, and then you could search the vessel for any sort of contraband, like munitions. The Q-15 boats, those are the heavily armed merchant vessels that the British were creating, they could fire upon a submarine that had surfaced before the submarine could fire back. Because the submarine would surface, the submarine's captain would be following the cruiser rules to demand to search a vessel. In the meantime, the crew aboard one of these Q-15 boats could bring the guns to bear and fire upon the submarine. This was considered unfair (laughs) by the submarine operators. After all, they were following the rules. They were saying, hey, we're not just opening up fire on these ships. We're, you know, following the protocol. So then Germany decided to adopt a different set of philosophies, unrestricted submarine warfare, which means that if a ship is in an area that was considered a war zone, it was fair game. Didn't matter if it was a merchant ship, a civilian ship, a military ship. It would mean that a submarine or any ship captain could fire upon it because it was in a war zone. And that gets us to the sinking of the Lusitania because the Lusitania was in such a zone and the uh, U-20 submarine fired upon it. The United States government demanded that Germany stop all kinds of uh, unrestricted submarine warfare operations and Germany initially agreed. You know, the United States was not in World War I yet. So Germany didn't want to, uh, to get the U.S. involved because that would turn the tide and make things much more difficult. So they agreed. But then eventually they returned to an unrestricted approach in 1917 uh, for lots of reasons that I won't get into because it goes beyond this podcast, but that meant that the United States entered World War I. And I realize all of this has more to do with the use of submarines rather than in how they work, but I figure it was also an important point to touch upon. And it shows how the response to the submarine threat really made Holland's dream of ending warfare a naive wish, right? It didn't turn out that the submarine was so terrifying that it made war have to stop. It just made war different. The U-19-class submarine was much larger than the Holland-class subs that were being used by the Royal Navy. Uh, These were also slightly different from the U.S. version of the Holland submarines were based on the same design. So let's do some comparison. The Holland-class sub measured 63 feet 10 inches long, that's about 19 and a half meters, and it was 11 feet 9 inches across, or 3.6 meters, and it carried a crew of eight sailors. It had a single torpedo tube. The U-19 was 210 and a half feet long, or nearly 64.2 meters. It was 20 feet or 6.1 meters wide, and it carried a complement of 35 sailors. The U-19 had dual eight-cylinder diesel engines and two motors for propulsion. She could reach a speed of 15 and a half knots, that's about 18 miles per hour on the surface, or nine and a half knots, or 11 miles per hour when submerged. She could also travel 11,200 miles, or around 18,000 kilometers if she was traveling when surfaced. She could dive to a depth of 164 feet. 
She couldn't travel underwater for very long, however, because like the Holland, she would switch to electrical power and that would quickly drain the batteries. Battery technology in 1917 was not that great. The diesel engines could power dynamos to recharge the batteries once the ship surfaced, so most of the time it traveled above the water and typically would only go under the water when preparing to attack a target. The U-19 class had four 500-millimeter torpedo tubes, two in the bow and two in the stern, and it would also carry six torpedo reloads. After 1916, the submarines would also have a deck gun, and there were four submarines in that class, like I said, U-19 to U-22. Germany would go on to develop other classes of submarines, like the UB class, which were meant for coastal operations. They would not venture that far from Germany. Uh, So they were more limited in their capabilities, but that just meant that they were also faster and more nimble than their bigger cousins. Then you had the long-range submarine cruiser. That was the UA class. These subs were real beasts. They were longer than the U-19. They were able to travel further and faster and carried a complement of 56 sailors with room for 20 more people aboard the ship. Germany planned to make 47 of the UA submarines, but only nine had been completed before the war ended. During the course of World War I, the German submarines would be responsible for sinking around 4,000 ships, and Germany would lose around 173 submarines in the process. By the time the United States entered World War I, it was clear that the country was way behind when it came to submarines. The country that had served as the home for the first practical submarine was now left in the wake so to speak. An engineer named Simon Lake had designed submarines for the U.S. Navy, but these were mostly used for experimental purposes. One of them set a depth record in 1912 of 265 feet, or 78 meters, for example. The U.S. Navy had classified their submarines by letter, so by the time you get to the L-class submarine, which launched in 1914, That one took nearly two and a half minutes to dive beneath the surface of the ocean. Compare that to the UB-class submarine, the coastal submarine in Germany. That could do the same thing in less than 30 seconds. Meanwhile, scientists and engineers began developing a technology that could detect submarines underwater. And it would ultimately get called SONAR, which would retroactively become an acronym for Sound Navigation and Ranging. The concept's pretty simple. In fact, for passive sonar, it's dead simple, because really it just means listening for sounds made by vehicles like submarines. So it it involved developing hydrophones, essentially microphones that can work underwater. But even if we go with active sonar, it's pretty easy to understand. It's all based off echolocation. Basically, the idea is that you send out a sound, like a low-pitched ping noise. Low-frequency sounds can travel pretty far. The sound travels through the water until it hits a surface, and then it bounces back. And by measuring the amount of time it took for a sound to leave and then to return to you, and presuming you know what the speed of sound is through the water you are in, you can get an idea of how far away an object is. And by doing it a lot of times, you can also figure out if whatever the thing is is traveling toward you or away from you, what the size of it is, lots of information like that. Now, while this was initially developed as a means of just detecting and thus targeting submarines in warfare, engineers would adapt sonar so it could be used as a navigation system aboard submarines in general. 
Submariners have to rely upon a collection of gauges and meters when they are underwater. Military submarines don't have windows. And besides, once you dive down a bit, it's just, it's so dark that you can't navigate by sight anyway. So you need to know where you are, you need to know how fast you are traveling, how far you are going, which might not be intuitive, depending upon whether you're traveling with or against a current, how deep you are, uh, how deep the water is, so how much more space do you have below you <laughs> before you hit ground, and uh, whether or not there's anything you need to worry about around you, like any types of, uh, of wreckage or sandbars or things like that. Sonar would become a huge help as it would let the navigation crew know if there was something they needed to maneuver around. And over time, submarine crews were creating incredibly detailed maps of various areas of the ocean, which was necessary if you wanted to pilot your submarine without having to scrape up against something or get embedded in mud or sand. When we come back, I'll talk about the advancements in submarine technology during the Second World War and beyond. But first, let's take another quick break. After World War I, many countries signed treaties that placed limits on stuff like how big a navy a country would be allowed to have. You know, we were starting to figure out, hey, maybe if we don't constrain ourselves to the size of our militaries, that just leads to these massive conflicts. This would, in turn, have an effect on shipbuilders, really anyone who was in the military-industrial complex. People who found themselves on... Uh, shaky ground because they couldn't land those sweet military contracts anymore because of those limitations. One thing that did happen in 1919 after World War I had already ended was that a German U-boat was sunk in American waters. This was actually a matter of propaganda. The UC-97 was turned over to the U.S. Navy, which studied it, and then it was sent to go on sort of a victory tour around the Great Lakes. People, American citizens, could get a look at one of the dreaded U-boats. And an event was planned on Lake Michigan during which the submarine was purposefully sunk, presumably to great applause. The U.S. Navy had been using an alphanumeric classification system for its submarines, working up the alphabet with each new class of sub. Like I mentioned the L class earlier, which was a, a pre-World War I class of submarine. Once the U.S. hit the S class of submarines, things changed. Uh, they changed the naming convention, and the name of a submarine would begin with the letters SS and then a number, and the names for the classes would be given names, often of, of sea creatures, and they were typically named after the first submarine of that class. So the very first of these was the Barracuda-class submarines, designated SS-163 through SS-165. So there were three of them. Uh, the individual submarines each had names. So you had Barracuda, after which the class was named, and you also had the Bonita and the Bass. Meanwhile, in Japan, the Japanese took possession of seven German U-boats and then invited nearly 1,000 German experts in the design, construction, and operation of submarines to jumpstart Japan's efforts to have its own submarine fleet, which would become very important for Japan during World War II. 
By treaty, Germany was technically forbidden to have a submarine fleet, but the country secretly began developing the next generation of submarine technology and even purchased a Dutch shipbuilding company that had been designing submarines for the international market. In the United States in 1925, some accidents involving submarines and surface ships had resulted in the death of many submariners, and that prompted new efforts to create means of escaping a sinking submarine. A submariner named Charles Swede Momsen came up with an idea, a special rescue chamber, kind of a modified diving bell thing that could be lowered from a surface ship to dock with a submarine's escape hatch and provide a safe way for submariners to abandon ship. His basic design was later refined by Alan Rockwell McCann, after whom the device would get its name, the McCann Submarine Rescue Chamber. The chamber would prove its worth in 1939, when the Navy used it to rescue 33 surviving crew members from a submarine called the Squalus. Uh, it had sunk after an accident. There was a, an explosion, part of the submarine flooded, all of the crew in that part of the submarine were lost, and the other 33 were, were able to be rescued using this particular uh, rescue chamber. In the mid-1930s, Germany renounced the Treaty of Versailles, and the U-1 series of submarines went into action. Germany began a new strategy called Wolfpack, in which groups of seven to eight submarines would form night attacks on targets. Then they would submerge to escape. And once the submarines reached a sufficient distance from their targets and presumably detection, they would resurface and then they would sail to the next attack zone to prepare for the following night. The submarines fell into categories like coastal submarines, long-range boats, and then Germany also had a Type 7 submarine. This was meant to fill in depending on what was needed at the time, so kind of a jack-of-all-trades submarine. Germany would build more than 700 submarines across these different classifications throughout the course of World War II. One German innovation in World War II got around a huge problem that submariners had been having since the invention of the submarine. They couldn't stay submerged indefinitely because of a couple of big problems. One was that the electrical systems would drain the batteries and then they'd be without power. Plus, they'd have to get access to atmospheric air occasionally because they could only carry so much air aboard the ship. A German scientist named Helmuth Walter figured out that by using a high concentration of hydrogen peroxide, he could solve both of those issues at once. The H2O2 would release an enormous amount of heat as it broke down, which could then be used to generate steam to turn a turbine and power an electrical generator. And a convenient byproduct of this process would be oxygen. The design, while capable of generating enough energy to move a sub at a very zippy speed compared to its uh, diesel engine variants, would also require a lot of hydrogen peroxide. It was determined to be about 25 times more fuel-hungry than a diesel-powered submarine. So it was thought to be expensive and not terribly practical. Plus, at the time, Hitler was pretty sure he had this whole war thing sewn up at that point. This would be around 1940. And so Germany never pursued the concept any further. And while the U.S. wasn't yet involved in World War II at that point, the country did escalate its submarine manufacturing efforts. 
the Navy settled on two designs for submarines to serve as the templates for its World War II subs. The first, established in 1940, was the Gato class, and the second class, called Balao, was essentially the same as the Gato, but with some improvements added to the design. Now, I'm going to skip to the end of World War II here, because otherwise this would become a very long laundry list of battles and encounters, and that's not really this show's focus. There would also be some crossover to other topics I've covered in the past, such as code-breaking, because that would become an important part of the various war efforts, both on the Axis and the Allied sides. And it very much was centered around submarine operations. But I've covered that in other shows. And by the end of the war, Germany had lost more than 800 submarines. So not just the 700 it had produced, but some that it had still had of its own. The United States lost 52 submarines. Russia lost 109 submarines. Uh, Russia had also begun the war with the largest submarine fleet, but during the course of the war, their manufacturing was far outpaced by other countries. By 1948, the United States began to experiment with sub-launched missile systems, so you could launch missiles from submarines. By 1953, United States submarines could carry nuclear missiles, which made them particularly uh, dangerous and useful in the Cold War. If you can create a nuclear missile launch facility and you can park it off the coast of whatever country you're looking at, you didn't have to worry if the missile itself couldn't travel the entire length of the globe. In 1954, the United States launched the Nautilus, a very popular name for submarines, this version of the Nautilus would have a nuclear-powered engine in it. So this was the first nuclear-powered submarine. And I've talked a little bit in other episodes about how nuclear power works. Essentially, you have a controlled nuclear decay process, and that generates a lot of heat. You use that heat to boil water into steam, and you use the steam to turn turbines, which are part of an electrical generator system. The United States has lost two such nuclear submarines, both in accidents. One happened in 1963. That submarine was called the Thresher, and no one knows for sure what exactly happened leading up to the accident. The submarine sank in water that was about 7,000 feet deeper than what the submarine's hull could withstand. So there was very likely total hull collapse before the submarine settled to the bottom. And it demonstrated that there was a need to develop a rescue system that could work at much greater depths than the McCann Rescue Chamber. And that led to the development of the Deep Submergence Rescue Vehicle, or DSRV. These are like submarine lifeboats. They can navigate down to a maximum depth of 5,000 feet, and they are designed to dock with the escape hatch of a submarine. So you would transfer submariners over to this smaller submersible vehicle and then uh, navigate away from the sunken sub. The second accident happened in 1968 with the USS Scorpion, which may have sunk due to an accident with one of the submarine's own torpedoes. There's other stuff that I could also cover in this episode. I haven't really touched on a lot of the life support system improvements over the years. So let's talk about that for a second, because obviously these are really important. All the older subs, you know, they had things like snorkels, and they would get up enough 
you know, close enough to the surface where the snorkels could open up and get a little bit of fresh air into the submarine. Uh, otherwise, you had to open up the hatch to air it out. But that doesn't really work if you're doing prolonged operations under the water. You have other issues you have to worry about. For example, you got to figure out how to get all that carbon dioxide out of the ship because at higher concentrations of CO2, you get to toxic levels and people will die. So to take care of that, submarines, particularly in the nuclear era where a submarine could at least in theory, operate for weeks without surfacing, you have to carry what are called scrubbers. And these rely on chemical compounds that essentially absorb carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide gets absorbed by these chemicals, and then you can treat those scrubbers to remove the CO2, typically by heating it up, and then the CO2 gets released. You can capture the released CO2 in a, uh, in a pressurized tank, and then you can essentially jettison the CO2 into the ocean. So that's how we make sure that CO2 levels don't build up. On top of that, you also need things like dehumidifiers because as we, you know, as we exhale, we're not just exhaling carbon dioxide, we're also exhaling water vapor. And so without dehumidifiers to capture some of that water vapor, you would have a lot of condensation building up all over a ship. And pretty soon, uh, everything would be moist. What a great word, huh? To produce oxygen, the submarine can typically take on seawater and run it through a desalination process to create fresh water. So you're removing the salt from the ocean water. Then with the fresh water, you apply an electric current to that water. The electric current breaks down the molecular bond between hydrogen and oxygen. So as a result, it starts to bubble and you get oxygen and hydrogen gas. This process is called electrolysis, and it's how modern submarines replenish the supply of oxygen within a sub, even if it operates underwater for weeks at a time. I also didn't go into detail over the various meters and gauges that you'd find aboard a submarine to monitor the sub's heading, its position, the amount of pressure on the hull, and other factors. But then to do so would require two or three more episodes. And I'm sure I'll get around to it in the future, and I'll cover how those different pieces of submarines work. I think that this topic is fascinating. I personally have toured a few submarines, including a World War II era submarine. In fact, I remember my wife and I toured the submarine and we were part of a tour group that was just four people. In fact, we thought it was just going to be my wife and I at first. But then these two tourists joined us and a submariner took us on a tour of a World War II era submarine we were amazed at how small everything was. The average submariner it was of a slightly uh, shorter than average height. You had to be. The facilities were very small. The quarters, the bunks and stuff were quite small. And uh, we're, we were taken through and we realized that the other two people in our group um, were German, probably still are. And that made things interesting because we were talking about a World War II-era submarine. But then the submariner aboard cheerfully pointed out that that particular submarine had been used in the Pacific theater, so far away from German ships, which seemed to make everything go much more smoothly for the rest of the tour. It was really neat to get a firsthand look at a submarine. And I, I rec recommend that if you get a chance to tour a military submarine, 
to check it out because it'll give you a real appreciation for what submariners go through. They typically get additional hazard pay, and it's completely understandable. The quarters are tight. You have no view of the outside world, and chances are that if you're on a nuclear-powered submarine, you may not see the outside world for weeks at a time. You're you know, breathing in this air that's been uh, processed through electrolysis. It's, uh, it's a different kind of experience. And um, yeah, it definitely opens up your eyes to how strange that world must be. And that wraps up this episode and the two-episode overview of how submarines work. Like I said, there's a lot more that we could go into, and in the future, I probably will revisit this topic and give more details. But I hope that this gives you an appreciation for the development and evolution of the submarine. And uh, if you guys have suggestions for future episodes, you can reach out to me. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find links to where we are on social media. You'll find an archive of all of our past episodes there. And it's completely searchable. So you can check and see if I've already covered a topic. And you'll also find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show. We greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 